Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out if you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time Welcome to Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is side A of a long-distance mixtape, where we attempt to create a narrative using 24 tunes from the 80s. That's right. We've never done this before, although we did it many times, at least I did it many times in my youth. Um, how often did we let the mixtapes speak for us? Sure. You know? Um, we, we've been playing around with genres and with themes now for four years, but the reality is so many of the mixtapes that I remember making, you know, it, very often I, I used to say I may not know how to say what I'm feel, feeling, you know, but I will find a song that does. Sure. Yeah. And you let the, the songs speak for themselves. That was That was one of the, you know, one of the pr- premier reasons that we created mixtapes. So we are going to give it a try this Valentine's Day. We have a story to tell, and we're going to let the songs tell it. Yep. Yeah, when Alan came to me with this idea, it also reminded me of, um, you know, it's kind of been a trend the last 20 years, uh, musicals, you know, Broadway musicals based on um, an artist's catalog, the most famous being Mamma Mia. Of course, there was Moving Out with Billy Joel. Uh, there was the... Um, Four Seasons, Frankie Valley, the Jersey Boys, mm-hmm. and so and there's many more. Dream Girls, I think, was Dream Girls based on a catalog of Motown or not? No, it might not have been, but there are a lot of. It them. was an original story, I believe, and so in Rock of Ages, of course, too. So that's kind of the combination of what we're looking for here: making mixtapes that said something we couldn't say, um, and putting these songs together from the '80s um, to to tell narrative. So basically, we're ripping off. Um, you know, uh, Rock of Ages, but <laughs> our own version of Rock of Ages. Well, you had it in film as well. Yeah. I, I, Moulin Rouge sure, as yeah, an example yeah, yeah. and uh, Across the Universe yep. where they took the Beatles, you yep, know. Yep. So, yeah, it's not an original idea, nor did we expect it to be because we did this, what, 40 years ago. Sure. So, but uh, being a long-distance mixtape, we imagine that many of our listeners out there this Valentine's Day may be separated from the person you would like to spend the holiday with. So this one goes out to all of you who are separated by space and time, and we are going to tell the story of two lovers who are going through a very difficult stretch for that reason. We're not telling the story. We're not telling the story. The music's telling the story. No, actually, we even talked about um, any of our listeners, if they want to spend the time um, coming up with an narrative, because we don't actually have it. I mean, we have a a rough outline of what happens. Sure. Yeah, but we thought it would be interesting if, um, based on the music that we've selected, um, that uh, some of our listeners come up with a short summary of of a story, movie, television show, novel, whatever, that tells the story of these these two um, people, this couple. 
Yeah, it would be really cool to see what our, our listeners would come up with. Well, shall we begin? Yeah, and, and by the way, just from the logic of what we're doing here, of course, we already have the order picked out ahead of time because we have a narrative in mind. So for the first time, we won't be going back and arranging them in a particular order. Correct. The sequence is already yep. prepared, and, and side A is truly side A of the mixtape. So if you're listening to this and you are you are going to create a narrative in your head and kind of fill in the details, um, we're starting from the very beginning and we're going to go straight through halfway, intermission for two weeks, and then the, the second half. That's right. Well, we begin the narrative, of course, with our lovers meeting one another. Uh, and the perfect song for that, I, I thought it's a great upbeat tune to start off with. I've chosen You Might Think by the cars. Heartbeat City 1984 was the year, and it hit number seven on the Hot 100. Um, you might think it won the first ever Video of the Year award at MTV's Video Music Awards. It beat out Thriller by Michael Jackson. That's surprising. Yeah, and Herbie Hancock's Rocket, among others. It's kind of like Avenue Q beating out Wicked for the Tony. Uh, exactly. I love them both, but you know. Yeah, well. Anyway. <laughs> but, no, I... Do you remember the video? Mm-hmm. It was ahead of its time. It I think was, everybody remembers yeah, the video. It, was, um, it, it still played quite a bit. It, it was very advanced for the time, and it was one of the first to use computerized effects. Uh, Singer-guitarist Rick Ocasek, I know I'm mispronouncing Ocasek, that. From, Ocasek's yeah. how we've pronounced it our entire lives. I'm never going to stop saying so, Ocasek. either way. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Rick Ocasek's image appeared in various animated scenes. He would show up as a fly. He was climbing the Empire State Building. Just about anywhere to get the attention of this girl. The object of his affection was played by model Susan Gallagher. Uh, the video was produced, or rather the song, not the video, the song was produced by Mutt Lang, uh, who had previously worked with uh, Def Leppard and ACDC, and of course he was married to Shania Twain, very famously, from 93 to 2008. Cars frontman uh, Rick Ocasek wrote the song. He is singing about a girl who thinks that he is crazy for butting up with her because she is so difficult. Now, Weezer actually recorded this song for the 2011 movie Cars 2. (laughs) Their version was used in a scene where Lightning McQueen and Mater go to Japan. Um, The actual Cars had reunited by 2011, but apparently, uh, you know, the the originals weren't contemporary enough for the kids' movie, I suppose. Right. the antecedent for the video uh, were commercials for the American gossip magazine National Enquirer, which featured goofy cutout animations of the celebrities that the magazine would feature. These spots were produced at Charlex Studios, 
So Jeff Stein, who directed the You Might Think video, commissioned them to work on it after pitching the cars on the idea, which was putting the band in pop culture scenarios and having an animated Rick Ocasek stalk the girl. Getting the band on board wasn't easy, though. Uh, Stein explained in the book, I Want My MTV, he said, I met the cars and I told them, the band is in the medicine chest and then on a bar of soap and Rick is a fly. And one of them said, why don't we all just play on a turd in the toilet bowl? That was the prevailing attitude. Probably Ben. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Stein was famous for his live videos though, like what he did with Billy Idol and Rebel Yell. Um, but, but he thought that the cars were a boring live act. So he used the digital trickery to get around that. Uh, the video took months to make and it first aired without the fly. I don't remember ever seeing it without Mm-mm. the fly. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's. It, I guess it extends past the um, the song. Right. And so maybe they just cut it when the song ends. Perhaps. Yeah. Uh, apparently, when it was first released in, into rotation, the fly was not in the video. Mm-hmm. It, it just wasn't ready yet. Uh, the, oh, it wasn't ready. Okay. Yeah, okay. The, the effects uh, seen in the video, of course, today can be created with a basic program. But in 1984, creating and rendering this stuff was extremely tedious and time-consuming. So it was. It was truly ahead of its time. And perfect first song. You have, uh, you know, a a young male. We never really decided on ages Yeah, we're going to leave this up to the audience. But uh, he has found a girl that he is interested in, and we are off. Yeah, the cars. I, this album I had on vinyl, one of my favorite records that I had as a kid. It was one of those. I was in that stage when I would buy a record and then read uh, all the lyrics before I ever listened oh, to it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then go through it, and yeah, it just blew me away. Uh, Heartbeat City, the title track, and Drive, and just so much good stuff on it. Yeah, and the cars. It's funny you mentioned Mutt, Mutt Lang produced the cars. Well, Rick Ocasek or Ocasek produced Weezer, uh, at least the, uh, the the blue album. Uh, I mean, so there's a connection there because then Weezer ended up covering the cars. But yeah, the, I, I, I guess they'd be kind of a, a boring live act. Um, maybe they're more of a recording band. I've never seen them live. No. Um, but, you know, if you like the music, I mean, I, there are a lot of bands I like that are not very um, dynamic on stage. Yeah. But I, you're there to hear the music. Exactly. Yeah. I've, I've been to a number of concerts where the, the yeah. act, uh, the weather like solo the music, it's or, not boring. Yeah. Solo right. or band was right. very stiff. But nonetheless... Um, and we have a connection to Rick Ocasek. Yes, we do. For a short period of time, I don't even know if it was a full semester, he went to the college, uh, and I believe he had stayed in the same dorm that we stayed in. He did, yeah. At Bowling Green. So, yeah. Was, um, the band actually was formed in Boston, but Rick Ocasek was from Ohio, or at least lived here for a time. So, yeah. Yeah. Great first pick. Great song. All right. Uh, we go to the female perspective now, and uh, this is How Will I Know by Whitney Houston.
It was actually written by George Merrill and Shannon Rubicam. Do you know who they are? Yes. Uh, Do you really? Yeah, uh, Waiting for a Star to Fall. Yeah, Boy Meets Girl. That's it. I, could, good. I couldn't remember the name. Very good. Couldn't remember the name of the, the, yeah, Boy Meets Girl. the duo, but yep. yeah. The song was actually written for, any guesses? Oh, that I don't know. Janet Jackson. Really? It was written for Janet Jackson, and she passed on it. Well, that was foolish. Kind of like when Elizabeth Taylor passed on Dorothy from Wizard of Oz, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, Whitney Houston was kind of this up-and-coming artist. Of course, she had a, a famous aunt in Dionne Warwick, uh, as well as her mother um, having recorded and, and so forth. And so uh, people knew that she was going to be a star. It was just finding the right um, vehicle for her. And if you remember, the original cover um, of, of the album it's very subdued. She has her hair pulled back. Right. Um, she's wearing a dress. Um, it looks very adult contemporary. It, it does. I always thought she looked like a goddess. Yeah, 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 on, yeah. On the, on the cover of that right. album. Which really. is great for, for older listeners, but not great for the MTV generation. True. Right? Yeah. And so the first two singles were, um, let's see, Saving All My Love For You and um, You Give Good Love, I believe, were the right. two first singles. Not necessarily in that order. Um, which, again, were very adult contemporary. So when How Will I Know uh, came about, they thought we need to really kind of rebrand her for the MTV generation. Of course, do you remember the video? I do. Um, she's sporting a very um, modern haircut, um, modern dress, and she's, I think, walking through different paintings. Or Yeah. It was, there are dancers. It's very MTV of that yeah. era. Oh, it's very colorful. Right, right. Yeah. And that's what kind of really launched her into, you know, relevancy for the youth of that time. So this uh, this was her second consecutive number one on the Billboard Hot 100. Her next five singles would hit number one as well. As well. So she had seven number ones in a row, which I, was a record at the time. I don't know if it's been beaten since. It's tough to say with Spotify because they base so much on, on streams now, which I think is unfair to compare apples to oranges it is, on the I, charts. But. I, I'm sure it's been beaten. I would think Taylor Swift, at the very least, has, right. has gotten it. I mean, when, has when got a beat. Drake released an album a couple of years ago, and um, every single song was in the top forty. <laughs> I remember that yeah. <laughs> because it's based on streams. So yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, we talked about the music video, and and of all the music videos that she made, I, this is the only one I can remember. So that tells you something. Really? Yeah. You don't remember? I want to dance with somebody. Oh, maybe. Okay. Yeah, yeah, the, the yeah. The two videos and the two songs were, okay. were very much like. In fact, they were yeah. both, they were both written by the same. Right. Okay. Well, that makes sense. I probably probably combined the two in my mind. So. Um, I remember. Well, the, the bodyguard. I the bodyguard. Few, right, yeah. Right. I, I, but, but it says something that they we remember the video, and that was the whole point was to try to uh, kind of rebrand her. Um, Whitney's reign in the late eighties happened um, during my transition from radio to more underground and alternative music, which we talked about on the show, but. The pop fan inside of me really appreciated her energy and her vocal prowess. Uh, I may or may not have secretly owned her first two albums on cassette. Well, I owned the first one on vinyl, so nice. I, I will yeah. I will readily admit to, to owning Whitney. Um, actually, I owned I think I owned the first owned the first three. Um, now, of course, I have all of her music, DJing. You just sure. accumulated all, but yeah, no, I was a Whitney fan. I, I I began to lose some interest about her fourth album. I, I just kind of fell off at that point. But yeah, no, she was she was the real deal. Well, yeah, and you think about, I mean, this is coming from someone who has absolutely no um, vocal talent whatsoever, me myself. But so many artists today rely on auto tune, right? Not the auto tune like T Pain, but you know the very subtle auto tune that that helps. Good singers sound great. 
Whitney recorded an era where there was no auto-tune. I mean, what you hear is what she was able to produce in the studio. And we've talked about her um, national anthem before oh, the Super Bowl and how great that is. Absolutely. I mean, one of the greatest vocalists of all time in pop music. Yep. So that's what uh, our female lead feels about uh, the male lead. So we've introduced the characters. And we continue. Um, we are back to the male perspective. And I give you Robert Palmer uh, from 1988, the Heavy Nova album. This one hit number two on the charts. The song title is Simply Irresistible. followed his power station hit Some Like It Hot and his solo breakout Addicted to Love with this lusty rocker uh, with just the right amount of synth. Simply Irresistible is a song about an enticing woman who gets whatever she wants from her man. Uh, it was a huge hit. Um, going to number two, it got stuck behind Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses, so it never hit the top spot. Uh, it did top the mainstream rock chart, though, for three weeks. Palmer brought back the models from the Addicted to Love uh, music video. And uh, this time, they multiplied. <laughs> um, five of them do this choreographed dance move, and there are another eight who stand behind Palmer looking bored. That, well, they all look bored. Well, the, yeah, they all do look bored, but, but eight of them are just literally standing there. It's the, the five from the original Addicted to Love video who are showing any kind of animation at And all. another connection, you mentioned Mutt Lang, who's married to Shania Twain, who lampooned this in her video. Yep. Um, what's the name of the song? Um, uh, something about a woman. Yeah, Man, uh, I, man I, feel I Feel Like a Woman. Like, feel right, Like a Woman, right? yeah. And, one more, the Cars video you might think was lampooned in Phil Collins' um, Billy Don't Lose My Number. Oh, I forgot When he lampooned that. that and David Lee Roth and some other videos at the time. Yeah, no, I forgot. Because when you were about talking that. about the video, uh, uh, the, the director of the video explained to the band. Remember, that's the concept of the of the Phil Collins. That's right. Uh, Don't lose my number. Video where someone's pitching all these ideas and their ideas that have already been done. Yeah, with with Phil inserted. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I, I, I <laughs> I'm just making connections all over the place. Here, I so. had totally forgotten about <laughs> Billy. Don't lose my number. That that video, great song. I, I'm gonna have to go back and watch it. Yeah. Well, both of Palmer's videos were directed by Terrence Donovan, and this song was always in rotation upon release. Um, the big sexy hook in this song is, is the pause after Palmer sings, Now I Find Her, and then after some drum beats, he comes back with Simply Irresistible. Uh, the song was in the works for three years before Palmer came up with this part, making the song complete. Um, 
uh, in interviews, he said, a little thing like that makes the difference between an idea and the complete song. Uh, and he actually, um, in Addictions Volume 1, the liner notes, he added, I like the manic military rhythm and the strong counter melody of the song. So he was a fan of this one. It, it uh, allegedly was his favorite of, of the tunes that it, he, he had written. Uh, Palmer won the 1988 Grammy Award for Best Rock Vocal Performance, Male, for this song. Uh, the same award he won two years earlier for Addicted to Love. Uh, a 1989 Pepsi commercial parodied the clip, cutting in images of the simply irresistible soft drink. Uh, and in the 2000 movie American Psycho, um, Christian Bale's character complains that he can't enjoy his new Rock Palmer tape as his girlfriend keeps chattering in his ear. Yeah. So uh, Palmer, he performed this on Late Night with David Letterman in 88 before Dave headed to CBS. And this was the first single from Palmer's ninth album. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know that I knew before this week that he had nine. Well, albums. I got to be honest, I'm not a Robert Palmer fan. I've really never cared for any of his music. Really, I, I like the three big hits. I like, uh, you know, "Bad Case of Loving You," "Addicted to Love," "Simply Irresistible." And those are the only three songs I've heard from Robert Palmer, other than the Power Station, Power Station. stuff. And I don't like any of it. So really, <laughs> I don't. Were you not a Duran Duran fan either? No, no. I, I mean, I don't like any of the solo stuff. Power oh, Station so, was fine. Power Station. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't like any of the what I've heard, which are the three singles, basically. I don't gotcha. know. I mean, it's just we've had yeah. this conversation sometimes. It well, you know, resonate. when I was younger, I thought that Robert Palmer was the Palmer of Emerson oh, Lake yes, yes, and yes, Palmer. Yes, yes. I no, did. They're, they're and different I, people. Yeah, and two two entirely different people. But in my head, I had it in my head that it was the same person. Um, no, I can't say that I'm a huge fan either, but. Certainly, I think this one works in sequence, mm-hmm. and sure, there you go. All right, so my next pick is a song by the former Go-Go frontwoman, uh, Belinda Carlisle, and that song is Mad About You, which came out in 1986 from her first album, her first solo album, Belinda. song, I didn't know this until I did my research this week, was originally um, written for a fourth Go-Go's LP. Really? Which never surfaced. So I don't know the details. I mean, I I did watch that documentary on Netflix several years ago, which was really good, but I I can't remember. Obviously, there was a lot of tension in the band going on, but... Oh, yeah. But anyway, this was kind of intended for the next Go-Go's record. That never materialized, so Belinda took it for her first solo album. Um, Here's a fun fact... Mad About You was one of the first what? This is 1986. 86. We're talking music format. Physical music format. Um, one of the first. CDs? CD. 
Not CDs. Nylon Curtain was one of the first oh, right. CDs back yeah. in 1982. 80, yeah. This um, is 86. One of the first C... I, I don't CD know. CD single. Oh. That's when the CD single started coming out. I, I wasn't even thinking yeah. the CD single. Yeah. I'm only putting it on a spot because I wouldn't have gotten these either. So. Yeah. Well, These I, are just interesting things that I came I across. never bought a CD single in my life. I mean, I had the 45s and I had the cuss singles, but yeah, I never bought I, a I CD. I bought a few. I bought Iggy Pop's Candy. Okay. Um... There are a couple other because they had a lot of the CD singles would have remixes and other that's true versions of the song, so I buy them for that. But um, anyway, so yeah, that was uh, one of the first uh, songs to be released as a CD single. Um, the song went to number three on the Billboard chart, um, and I helped with that because I purchased the, uh, the the 45. In fact, I still remember the sleeve. Remember, you had two different kinds of 45 sleeves. You had the generic ones. That were just, you know, the plain paper with the hole in the middle so you could read the label. Right. But then you had the prestige CD um, sleeves, which were, were like, they were still paper, but they were pictorial. Right. And you couldn't see the label of the actual record. And this one had, uh, I don't know if it was the cover of the album, but it had Belinda sitting in a chair backwards and her blonde hair is flowing back and she had these black stockings. And the only reason I remember this is because I'm pretty sure I hung it on my wall in my bedroom. <laughs> so, I per- I, so I know for a fact I had this uh, on 45. Um, and, I, and I never really latched onto her solo career. I mean, she had this song and then she had Heaven is a Place on Earth. And she had I Get Weak. That was Oh, that's right. I Get uh, Weak. In between. I, yeah, she had three or four okay, singles. Okay. But I just never really got into her. I love the Go-Go's, just never really got into Other than that single, I, I never really purchased anything past that point. Yeah, no, I um, I there's always been, I, I don't know, I mean, Go-Go's fans and Bangles fans have it in their minds that there is a rivalry between the two groups. There's not. They're actually friends. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, nonetheless, I you know if if you're gonna go down that road, I, I I'm much more into the jangle pop of the Bangles and the the '60s you know vibe than I was the Go-Go's themselves. I love the Go-Go's, but yeah, Belinda on her solo track i just i didn't dislike the music but it it was very clearly it was just pure 80s pop and you know this is when we we were getting to that point with our snobbery sure sure, talking about rock is dead and and the like so i agree i I was kind of tuning out the pop music about this the gogos had a new wave alternative bend to them oh yeah Uh, but belinda kind of leaned more into the to the pop thing right um, well, the Go-Go started as a punk Well, yeah, band. they couldn't yeah. play their instruments, L.A. punk scene, all that. Yeah, uh, I actually got into, a, not an argument, but a discussion at lunch this week with coworkers. Um, we were talking about, um, I don't know how this came up, but we were talking about the Go-Go's. And somebody said that they didn't deserve to be in the Rock Hall. And so, I, I of course... I disagree with that. Yeah, I had to say, I had, if nothing else, if nothing else, for the reason they were the first female group, completely female group, yeah. to write and record and, I believe, produce, produce their own music. Yes. That is worth it right there. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they opened the floodgates. I mean, yeah. all the female artists that followed. And you had some that came before. I mean, you had, like, the Runaways as an example. Yeah, right? but, but again, but, they were kind of pieced together by they, this exactly. manager. Who, and, and they certainly did not write their own music right. and they did not, you know, it, it's or all the girl groups of the sixties, Shangri-La, yeah. Motown. Yeah. They, yeah. Weren't, they weren't right. The go-go's were the first ones to do it all. Yep. And they did it picking up instruments. They didn't know how to play. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I mean, it, if you're going to induct, you know, the first female, all, all female band, yeah. the go-go's are, 
A thousand percent. Yeah, it, they had to be there. Yes. In fact, I'd argue that the Rock Hall waited too damn long to induct yes. them. So. And we've bragged about this before, but we were at that induction ceremony. We were. We saw Drew Barrymore in, um, introduce her, or uh, introduce them. Yeah, the induction ceremony is actually back in Cleveland this year. I know. So but we don't know who the nominees don't are. Don't know who the nominees are, and I'm, I'm getting kind of worried because I have a lot of Saturday weddings mm. in October. I right now have the weekend open that I think it will fall on. I'm going to be really upset if I don't, because I, I fully intend to go back yeah, for this year's induction ceremony. Definitely. So. That was great. And not that, I, I mean, our seats were high, but it wasn't that expensive, if I remember correctly. No, wasn't that bad. It was pretty reasonable for all that we saw. Yeah. I mean, I got to see Paul McCartney play with Foo Fighters. I mean, yeah. how do you put a price on that? All right, you're up. All right. Well, uh, my next song, this one is titled The Waiting. It's by Tom Petty. It's from the 1981 album, Hard Promises. who knows the pangs of anticipation can relate to the premise of this song. The waiting is the hardest part. Uh, Tom Petty explained that this was a song that took a long time to write. Uh, Roger McGuinn swears uh, that he actually told um, Tom Petty the line about the waiting being the hardest part. But Petty said he believed he got the idea from something Janis Joplin had said on television. Waiting for what? Waiting for a call back? Waiting for a second date? Waiting to have sex? What are we talking here? Well, I think it's just in in the context of the song, it's about finding the one. Oh, waiting for the, yeah, the soulmate. Wait, yeah. Got it. Right. Um, that's what the song is about anyway. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, but uh, yeah, he said um, he had the chorus very quickly, but he had a very difficult time piecing together the rest of the song. It's about waiting for your dreams and not knowing if they will come true and in the context of the song your soulmate being the one you've been dreaming of um petty said he, he always felt it was a very optimistic song it is of course um this was released as the lead single from tom petty and the heartbreakers fourth album hard promises at the time tom petty was so popular his record label wanted to charge one dollar more for his lp than the standard eight dollars 98 cents but they backed down after he told them if they did, he was renaming the album $8.98. That's funny. Yeah. Um, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, they performed this in their Live Aid set along with American Girl, Rebels, and Refugee. Um, the song gets a mention in the uh, 2019 Netflix movie A Marriage Story with Laura Dern. Uh, playing Scarlett Johansson's hard-nosed divorce attorney. Yeah, she she actually Kyle says. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, she says in the film, 
wasn't it Tom Petty who said waiting is the hardest part? Uh, I represented Tom Petty's wife in the divorce. <laughs> I got her one half of that song. Uh, <laughs> I just, um, I remember that particular line from the, the movie. Um, in real life, Petty actually got divorced from his first wife, Jane, in 1996. But um, yeah, this song triggered some soul searching from the replacements, actually, who toured with Petty in 89. While watching him perform The Waiting and listening to the crowd roar the yeah, yeah, yeah part, Replacements frontman Paul Westerberg realized he and his band just weren't made of the stuff that makes popular music. Hmm. Said that in interviews. So yeah, Tom Petty, the the Tom Petty test. I told you about uh, Rick's. Oh yeah, Tom Petty test. If you don't like Tom Petty, he's not sure he can be your friend. Yeah, I I love Petty. In sure. fact, Petty is he's one of those few artists that I really just. I have a hard time forgiving myself never having seen mm-hmm. him live. Right. In fact, the last time that he came to Cleveland, I because I, Gail's a huge fan too, we, we said uh, at the time we should have gotten tickets and we said the next time he comes, we are definitely going to see him. We said that and within a month of saying it, he passed away. Yeah. So. And, and what's interesting, you talked about how he stuck up, uh, stood up for the fans with the price of, of the record. Right. Kind of. That's kind of the indirectly the reason why he died. He had fractured his hip during the tour, and they wanted to cancel the tour, and he did not want to let his fans down. So he said, "I'll just make it through the last I don't know how many weeks or months." But so he started taking painkillers to get him through the tour. And you can you can find on YouTube the very last song he ever played uh, on, on that tour, and it was "American Girl," and you can't tell that he's in any pain at all. He he's just performs you know spectacularly and the bandmates were like yeah he was in a ton of pain and and at that point highly addicted to painkillers which eventually led to his death i yeah very tragic but admirable stupid very admirable in the sense that you know he didn't want to cancel the tour i don't know that i ever actually heard the cause of death yeah yeah wow yeah I, i mean it was an indirect i don't know if it was a heart attack or a stroke or something but something with the amount of medicine yeah, he was taking. Yeah. Well, it's, it's taken so many. I mean, Michael Jackson to Prince. You oh, know, yeah, yeah. All, all of them. Sure, so, sure. Wow. Yeah, yep. I, I don't know that I ever heard that. Yeah. Sad. Yes, definitely. All right, so the next track we've chosen, and we're not going to necessarily lay out the narrative on every song, right? You Correct. guys can fill in the blanks. Yeah. Um, is Let's Hear It for the Boy by Denise Williams. From 1984, from the huge movie and huge soundtrack Footloose, which I believe has also has a Broadway musical version of it. It does so many things, and a, a very bad cover by Blake Shelton. I haven't heard that. Oh, so. yeah, be thankful. <laughs> be thankful.
Not only was it recorded for Footloose, but it was featured prominently in the film. Um, it was one of six songs from the soundtrack to hit the top 40, right? This is the age of the mega album. We've talked about this before, where there's a plethora of artists who would release an album and have five, six, seven singles off of that record. This is no exception. Can you name the others? Can you name the other five songs? So we have Let's Hear It for the Boy. Well, yeah, Footloose. Footloose, that's two. Um, Holding Out for a Hero. Three. Um, Did Shalimar actually hit? Dancing in the Sheets. Dancing in the Sheets. It's four. Um, Oh, what am I missing? I'm, I'm blanking. Mike Reno and Ann Wilson, Almost Paradise. Almost Paradise, yeah. Um, Kenny uh, Loggins, I'm Free. Really? I'm Heaven Free? Helps the, yeah, you know. Uh, oh, I, I remember the song. Yeah, yeah it, that was it a single. That, uh, it made the top 40. Wow. I, didn't, made, I, I don't know how far it went to the top right. 40. Right. No, I didn't remember that. Yeah. And did we did we name all of them or we forget? That, I, I lost count. No, that's five. <laughs> okay. That's, yeah. Well, we had six. Or, was six. No, that was, that was six. Okay, that was yeah, six. That okay. was six. Yeah. No, it had quite a quite amount of... Um, musical commercial uh, appeal so um going all the way this song went to number one um it was the second song um for williams to become a number one song can you name the first i couldn't by the way i had to look this up you're going back to the 70s for this one. Oh wow it's um, a duet it's not helping it's a me. duet with someone that our moms liked <laughs> Streisand. It's a duet with Johnny Mathis. Uh, I, I too I, much, I, too little, too late. Okay, too no. much, too little, too late. Yeah, I know that. I that was Denise Williams. I I I didn't know that, so I I, I had to look that up. I was surprised. You said I I was uh, I wasn't even following that. I'm I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. I got lost in your explanation. I, I threw out Babs there for a moment. All right. So um, I, I would, I'm sorry. I was looking up. You're gonna have a duet with two women. Yeah. Wait. No. That that would be a triad, wouldn't it? <laughs> no. Just two women. Two women singing. Oh, two women. Two women. Singing. Yeah. You can. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's yeah. possible. Could have been stars. Yeah. I yeah, think yeah, I was could have. Um, I actually, I, I, in fairness, I don't think my mom ever liked stars. Oh, she did. Oh no. no, I thought you meant. My mom loved Johnny Mathis. Oh, Johnny Mathis. Well. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Everybody from that era loved Johnny Mathis. I'm sorry. No, I was looking it up. I was curious, and I haven't found the answer because you, you kind of uh, interrupted my search. Sorry. No, I, I, <laughs> don't be sorry. I'm actually curious. What was the best-selling soundtrack of the 80s? Do you know? Well, I'd put my money on either Footloose or Beverly Hills Cop. Uh, would be would be another one, but I think Footloose did had had more singles and was probably more commercially successful. I'm, um, I'm curious. Uh, Back to the Future had a couple singles, not a lot. Breakfast Club had one. Hmm. What am I missing? Am I missing something big? Well, you're missing a huge one. Oh, okay. What Pur- Purple Rain. Purple Rain. Yeah. And okay. there was Top Gun. There there were a number of sure, them. Sure. Sure. Why am I not actually finding an answer to this on Google? They're giving me the 25 best soundtracks, <laughs> which is not what I typed in. No, I'm just curious. I mean, I know that I believe the Saturday Night Fever still holds the record. Uh, that would make sense. Um, yeah. But I, I, I know we were talking about the, the six singles, and it just got me wondering. I don't know what the best-selling soundtrack of the 80s was. Yeah. So, well, if you figure it out, let us know. Yeah. Let's hear it for the boy. Earned uh, Williams a pair of Grammy nominations for Best Female Pop Vocal Performance and Best Female R&B Vocal. Um, she also received an Oscar nomination uh, for Best Original Song. 
Um, and I vaguely remember the music video. Do you remember? I just remember a little kid in a tuxedo. That's, that's the only <laughs> thing I remember from that video. I just remember her dancing around a number of men in different outfits. Okay. And that's that's really all. But I one remember. of them was probably a little boy in a tuxedo. I'm I don't know. Sure, that's it what was. I remember. Sure. <laughs> memory betrays me quite a bit lately, so could be wrong. Do you find an answer yet? Uh, top selling movie soundtracks of all time. Uh, number one actually is not Saturday Night Fever. The, bo- oh. the Bodyguard beat it. Oh, okay, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, so Bodyguard is number one. Uh, Saturday Night Fever is number two, and number three, which would make it the highest, the best selling of the eighties was actually Purple Rain. Mm, okay. So, Dirty Dancing is at five. Oh, Dirty Dancing, of course. That's, yeah, it's at five. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Um, Flashdance is 10. Footloose isn't even in the top 10. That surprises me. Um, you want to hear the top, you want to hear the Those everybody about the singles and they didn't buy the LP. Yeah, but what I, else you I got suppose, there? Well, number one was The Bodyguard. Mm-hmm. Two, Saturday Night yep, Fever, as yep. I said. Three, Purple Rain. Four was Forrest Gump. Uh, five, Dirty Dancing. Six, Titanic. Seven is Grease. That makes sense. Eight was Waiting to Exhale, another Whitney Houston film. Nine is Space Jam, and ten is Flashdance. Okay, so what you have there are the actual albums that were best-selling. I bet you if you went by a different measure, like the amount of singles that were successful, Footloose would have to be near the top. Oh, it would, yeah, I would think so. Mm-hmm. But, um, no, I, I was just curious. I thought Rocky IV had yeah, several. Yeah, yeah. I... um. No, I thought Footloose might might have been the best selling of the '80s, but apparently it was not. Although Prince makes perfect sense, yes, yeah, sure does. So yeah, okay. I digress. That's all right. <laughs> so That's what we do on the show? Uh, my fourth track. This one is a duet. Uh, it is "I Knew You Were Waiting," and the parenthesis for me by Aretha Franklin, featuring George Michael. It's actually on Aretha which was her 1986 album, and this duet did hit number one. John Landis was asked how he got Aretha Franklin to appear in his 1980 film, The Blues Brothers. He replied, I asked her. There you go. The point being that the Queen of Soul had fallen out of favor and was looking for work. Uh, many other music legends, Ray Charles, Tina Turner, Roy Orbison, among them, they were also at career lows. So five years later, with the release of her album, Who's Zoom and Who, her fortunes were significantly reversed. Uh, Who's Zoom and Who 
contained two U.S. Top 10 hits, the title track and Freeway of Love. Still, it took this song with George Michael to return her to the top of the chart. She had not been there for 20 years. Last time she hit number one was with Respect in Mm -hmm. 1966. Um, George Michael was coming off a string of hits with his work in Wham, uh, but had not yet released his first solo album. Uh, It would be two more years before the release of Faith. So the song was not originally written as a duet. It was first pitched to Tina Turner, and she passed on it. Uh, Then to Aretha Franklin, it was Arista Records' head, Clive Davis, who suggested that Franklin record the song as a duet with George Michael. And the finished song appeared on Franklin's 86 album, as I said. Uh, George Michael wrote about his experience recording the song in his book, Bear, B-A-R-E, saying that he and Franklin recorded the song together but did their ad-libs separately. Uh, Michael admitted to being nervous, but he knew there was no point in trying to copy Franklin's style. Uh, He said, nobody can emulate Aretha Franklin. Amen, brother. Um, He said, it's stupid to try. I just tried to stay in character, keep it simple. It was very understated in comparison to what she did. Did Aretha play at the Rock Hall concert that we went to? I think she did, yeah. didn't she? Yeah. I remember seeing her live. In uh, 95, yeah. She she was there. I was really excited. Did you read about the big concert announcement for Brown Stadium? And they, and they just, they, they talked up like it was going to be the most incredible thing and I got really excited and then I saw who was going to be at the press conference and it was Jimmy, Jimmy Haslam who owns the Brown Browns, um, a couple other big wigs like the mayor and then the, um, the main curator of the Rock Hall. Oh. And I thought maybe there was an anniversary coming up and they were going to do another concert for the Rock Hall like they did in 95. Oh, I'd love where that. Where they would have, you know, 40, 50 different artists where I think it was six or seven hours. I was so excited. I'm a little disappointed. Is this the Billy Joel, Billy Joel and Rod Stewart? Stewart? Nothing yeah. against Billy Joel. But well, yeah. I was hoping for another huge concert like we saw 30 years uh, ago. I, w- I would give anything for another but concert like the that. the 30th anniversary will be next year. True. So maybe... True. Maybe they'll do that. Yeah, I um, I saw Billy Joel last summer with Stevie Nicks, mm-hmm. and that was that was a great show. I I had to admit I I really went to the concert for Stevie. Um, I've seen Billy Joel so many times. Um, right now, the only way I think you'd get me to see him again is if I actually made it to the residency at at the Garden right, before right. he calls that, it quits. That, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he is touring this summer with Sting on a lot of hmm. different. Uh, legs of the tour now if Sting were coming with him to Cleveland if the police played with Billy Joel well, I would well, definitely hell yeah but um, no, Sting I, I could probably justify seeing Billy again um, not, not that I don't want to see Billy again I've just spent a fortune sure, seeing him yeah, right. but not Rod Stewart I'm, no, I'm not a Stewart no, fan no. I just I'm not so, so sorry I interrupted oh no that's <laughs> I, that, that's okay I was actually done so, well, you mentioned Roy Orbison. Here's another thing I learned this week. Um, I didn't know that he was so young when he died. I think of him, I, I, he was 60s, right? I, I, right. I, I kind of think of him, and I kind of, because he was kind of old school, I guess I lump him with like Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry and those guys. Well, he, he came out of Sun Records. He was only a few years behind them. But when he died in 1992, I think, uh, I think I'm going to talk about him later, um, he, he was 54 years old. It's about right. I was yeah. thinking he was in his seventies. Um, well, I'm, I'm only three years away from that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's. And I also I knew part. this. I, I didn't know this till for about 
20 years ago. I thought he was blind till about 20 years ago. Oh, really? Because the sun. Because he always sunglasses. wears sunglasses. I yeah. just assumed he was like Stevie Wonder. He's, he wasn't blind. No, no, he wasn't. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, that that makes sense. I mean, he he started at Sun Records. He was a he was a session musician for Sun Records uh, during the heyday of Johnny Cash, Elvis, Jerry Lee, Carl Perkins. Um, but he started recording his own music with Sam Phillips in Memphis. I want to say just a few years later, like 61, okay. maybe. Uh, Pretty Woman was 64. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, if you figure he was early 20s at that time. Well, I guess it makes sense. And I guess if I go back to when we were in college, when he passed away, 54 would have sounded old to me back then. Right. But it just doesn't sound that yeah. old now. But I, the killer, you know, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, he, he, he would have only been maybe four or five years older. That's um, crazy. Elvis, of course, was long gone by then. Yeah. And Johnny Cash. Jerry Lee, Jerry Lee still alive? No, Jerry Lee died. Um, he had to be in his age. Two years ago, okay. three years ago. Um, Cash is gone. Actually, the 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 quartet, um, you know, the, the very famous right uh, four of them. I think they're Carl Perkins might be alive. I'm not sure about Carl Perkins, but you know, we've lost you know the other three. Yeah. So. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, he. Um, I yeah, didn't that that, make, that makes sense? But I guess I didn't think he was that. I did. it just doesn't sound. Yeah, no, I, I would have guessed sixties. So, but he was he was close. So. All right, uh, my next pick is from the late eighties, um, and I'm going with "Never Tear Us Apart" by In Excess from the, another huge album of the eighties, Kick. Don't ask me what you know is true Don't have to tell you I love your precious heart I, I was standing You were there Two worlds collided It's actually the fourth single from that Monster LP, and it's, uh, I guess it's a power ballad. You could say it's a power ballad, right? Uh, not, not, not a metal power not, ballad. Not a, yeah, but, uh, but, but an alternative certainly. power ballad. Oh, yeah. And uh, it kind of showed a different side of the Australian New Wave uh, band in excess. Um, you know, you had the, I don't know if it's an actual cello. It sounds like a cello, maybe a keyboard, right? But you have that as kind of the rhythm. In fact, is there a drum? I don't, there may be a drum eventually in the song. There I think is, there yeah, is. But, there but, but is. Uh, originally there is. The, the rhythm from the beginning is, is by that cello sound. Right. Yeah, no, um, later in the song is he leads into Never Tear Us Apart there's dun 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 yeah right that's where the drum yeah, comes that's in that's where the drum comes in um, that, there's a mixtape idea for us so, so, hit songs without drums huh like Yesterday from the Beatles it'd be very acoustic <laughs> it would be <laughs> <laughs> um, I really liked NXS's early records um, you know the what's the I can't remember the name of the original one it had Original Sin on it uh, then there was Shabu Shabba 
Um, then there was uh, Listen Like Thieves. Yeah. And so I really, really liked the, the early stuff. I mean, it was just a, such a unique sound at the time. Now, by the time Kick comes out, it's not, it's no longer a unique sound. And, and they're kind of another alternative band. Um, and they became a little more highly polished and, and, and produced, which, you know, happens with a lot of artists as they become more successful and they become more radio friendly. So I'm going to be a snob and say I kind of like Kick, but then I kind of didn't like Kick like at the time. And maybe, again, this is really shallow, but they were kind of one of my secret bands in the early 80s. And then when everyone discovered them in 1987, I kind of resented that. So Dave the hipster. <laughs> I stopped kind of listening <laughs> to them. Um, because of that, so it, it's still it's still great stuff, uh, especially Kirk Pengilly's soulful sax oh, solo yeah. on this track, which can, you know adds a lot more life above that faux bi- violin sound, which I didn't really care for. I, I wish they wouldn't have had that, frankly. But yeah, um, Michael Hutchins talking about deaths. Michael Hutchinson passed away in 1997. Hutchins, Hutchinson, Hutchins, Hutchins, Hutchins. Michael Hutchins, yeah, Hutchins passed away in 97. Um, and they played this song uh, appropriately when the other band members carried his casket from the church. Yeah. Uh, a few years, a few years later, the band appeared on a reality show to find their next lead singer. Do you remember that? I do. Um, and indeed, uh, I don't remember this. J.D. F- uh, Fortune was the guy that won, hmm. and he served as their lead singer up through 2011. Yeah. I now, in all honesty, I couldn't give you the name of yeah. one song with him as lead right. vocalist but it was uh, an interesting idea having a reality show to yeah. replace i i don't i don't know that i remember the reality show i mean i i knew they had a new lead. i do remember i think i, I watched the first couple did episodes and I, didn't I, finish. I knew they had a new lead they were yeah i remember when they went out on tour i don't i mean they never met the same success because hutchins was revered you know by the fans um yeah he took his own life didn't he well, it was a hotel room asphyxiation. A little bit, yeah. I mean, some say it's suicide. Some say it was accidental, based on well, yeah, yeah, you know that kind of thing. So I guess we don't know for sure. Yeah, you uh, too, Bono, and you too wrote a great song uh, for him called "Stuck in a Moment." It's off the "All You Can't Leave Behind" LP. Right, really, really good song. Oh no, I mean, he was he was a huge influence in the alternative new wave scene, and uh, you know, we we lost a lot of good stuff. I'm sure. Can you name the other band? That got their um, lead singer from a reality show. From a reality show. It's a band from the 70s and 80s. Oh, Journey? Nope. No, no, they found him through YouTube videos. YouTube, yeah. Um, lead singer dies. Reality TV show, American Idol. One oh, the, Queen. Yes, yes. Queen. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. With, uh, what's his name? I can't think of it now. <laughs> I can't think of the name of the... Um, the guy that took over. I, anyway, I'm, I watched bl- I'm blanking on it too. Yeah, I am. Um, oh my God, what is his name? <laughs> Wait, <laughs> good old people. Uh, anyway, dementia setting in. Okay, <laughs> um, moving right along. Uh, you and I, we we were discussing my next track a couple of weeks ago, actually, um, and we were in agreement that this would be the one song on today's mixtape that our listeners would not know. Yes, um, yes. it is a deep cut by a band that was largely unknown outside of alternative radio. Um, there were a few surprise crossovers to the Hot 100, which I credit to the MTV video rotation, but I had to assume that many of our listeners do not know the Smithereens at all. Really. No, I think they would. You, you think? They would have at least heard of the Smithereens. Well, and they had a couple top 40 hits. Well, if they do, it's from only a handful of songs. Blood and Roses, Only a Memory, Girl, well, Girl, you, Girl well, Like You. Girl Like You is the one that I think everybody would know. Right. Um, the stuff you just mentioned is their best stuff off their, off their solo or their first uh, debut album. 
alternative fans will recognize that. Oh yeah, certainly. But, but yeah, but uh, by the time they went radio friendly, people are gonna know that. So. Yeah, no, that's true. But I, the early stuff, especially for you, um, you one introduced, of my favorite records you introduced that album yes. to me, and I stand by this. I think it is one of the strongest debuts. Yes. Of any. Not only '80s rock band, but of of any rock band, especially for you, is so. I don't, I don't know. I never get tired of playing. No, it's just, playing. It's it. incredible. Yeah. Um, honestly, I'd be hard pressed to name any '80s band who is as underrated and underappreciated as the Smithereens. Hmm. Yeah. Um, this was a band that was both passionate and un and they were passionate and and, and brooding, and they were terse, but they were towering. You know, they wrote songs that were both modern and timeless they were steeped in 60s british invasion influence and they used that inspiration to create a sound unlike anything else on the radio they were brilliant rockers who masterfully integrated infectious hooks with lovelorn lyrics performed by world-weary vocals stinging guitar and chugging bass but they were also daring enough to slow things down in ways their contemporaries would never have considered I dare you to name any other alt-rock band of the 80s who would stop rocking out mid-album to deliver an accordion-accented three-quarter waltz. Sure, yeah. Right? Thank the gods that the Smithereens were that daring because my next song, folks, the one that we were saying you likely do not know, really, I, I know we said we're not going to talk about the narrative in great detail, but this song is key to making the mixtape work. My next selection is titled Cigarette. Smoked my last cigarette, sat in bed for a while. Thought of your face and that brought me a smile. Wanted another one, fell back asleep instead. Woke and found you sitting there on the bed. Cigarette, cigarette, burning up time Cigarette, cigarette, watch the smoke climb Cigarette, cigarette, wasting away Just like this cigarette, our time is running down Only one hour till you're leaving this town now, Cigarette is the fourth track on the Smithereens debut album. And if you are not familiar with the Smithereens, or if you're not familiar with their debut album, um, you undoubtedly know Nirvana. Because, fun fact, the Smithereens were a huge, huge influence on Nirvana. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nirvana famously kept just one cassette in their van. Just one. Especially for you? Yeah, on yeah. one side of the cassette was the Smithereens, especially for you. Green Thoughts on the other side? No, no. On the other side was a heavy metal band oh, actually okay. titled Celtic Frost, <laughs> yeah, which, which yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't I, know I Celtic Frost. But in the days directly before Nirvana recorded their, de- their debut, Bleach, they listened to both sides of that cassette on repeat over yeah. and over again. And they've since said, um, well, really it's just no, novellistic, uh, Am I pronouncing it Chris, right? yeah, yeah, Chris, Greek, yeah. yeah. Um, it's you know he has, Novoselic, I yeah. think is how to pronounce it. He he has said that yeah, especially for you, without a doubt, was greatly influential on how they prepared and how they wrote for their debut album. Um, you know, I listened to this album on repeat as well, and as a smoker, because I was a smoker at the time, this song "Cigarette" was always a trigger. 
I don't think I ever listened to this song in college without letting up. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. You know? Kind of a requirement. Right. I, I quit smoking years ago, but I still vividly remember how this song, A Camel Cigarette, and my trusty Zippo always gave me pause. Because this song, it's about time. Yeah, it uses it as a timing device. Yeah. Or, yeah. or rather, it's about how time is lost. Right. It's a figurative lesson, a metaphor for our apathy. You know, how often do we take our relationships for granted? And how often do we miss opportunities for more meaningful connection with the people we love because we choose to be passive observers instead of active participants? Uh, it's very our town, sure. oh, <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, the lesson learned by song's end of Cigarette is one learned too late. Because just like the character Cigarette, time with his lover is running down, and now there is only one hour left until she is leaving their town. And folks, here begins one of the most difficult situations a couple can face, the long-distance relationship. So, um, yeah, I give you a cigarette by the smithereens, and now our exposition has ended. Last time I'll actually talk about the narrative, but here begins our rising Yeah, action. I'm going to repeat what you said. If you have not heard or do not own a copy or have not streamed whatever, wherever we are now, um, of especially for you, for a while there, it wasn't on Spotify. I think it's back on Spotify oh, it's, now. Yeah, it's there. Um, but just, and, and it's funny, I discovered them. I'd, I'd heard of them before. And of course, this, now we're in Ohio. We've talked about this in the mid-80s. And we're not getting all the stuff that California and then New York is getting. So a lot of our, our, our alternative music is coming either through people that we know, older people, John Hughes movies, soundtracks, right? I was in the, the, the library, the Stark County Library, and I found um, this, I think it was on vinyl. Uh, and I thought, oh, I'll give them a chance. I remember hearing of them. And I'm in a lonely place, just freaking blew me away. Oh, yeah. And Blood and Roses. And behind the wall of sleep, yeah, and cigarette. I mean, just incredible stuff. Yeah, well, the entire album, Blood and Roses, without question. I mean, that's the heartbeat. It's a fun baseline of play. The, oh yeah, um, yeah. No, you you introduced him to me. In fact, this was the most intimate concert I have ever been to. Uh, a ballroom in Toledo. In yeah, a hotel in a hotel ballroom. a hotel ballroom, and you know they they were on a stage, if you want to call it that. It was like really one step up. Right. We could have we could have and. I'm sure many of the attendees did. You could have reached out and touched sure, any yeah. member of the band. It's a great show. Yeah, I've never been that close to any artist who was performing. It was just, you know, unbelievable to I me. I think we bootlegged it as well. We did, yeah. <laughs> I have no idea where that is. I don't know. I remember using the little micro cassette recorders yeah, yeah. that we had for our, our lecture halls. We were bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. pirating. Uh, but, um, yeah, no. This is one of the one of the alternative bands you, you got me into with ease. Yes. So... Love the smithereens. All right. My next one, my wife is going to be very happy about. Um, <laughs> it's Right Here Waiting by Richard Marks from 1989 from his second uh, aptly titled record, Repeat Offender. I slowly go insane I hear 
I probably mentioned this before. She's a fan as a teenager. Uh, when we met, I was in the alternative thing, and she was still kind of into the oh, I remember the radio friendly thing. I remember you complaining about her a little love bit of a of snob. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just teased her relentlessly at that time as I'm introducing her to REM and Indigo Girls and The Smiths. Um, but you know what? That wasn't fair. Honestly, um, I do respect Richard Marks very much as a songwriter and a performer. He does come off a, a bit awkward at times. Um, it, it's pop music, which, you know, sometimes that brand of, because that was the late 80s, so that's the overproduced adult contemporary sound, which I'm not a big fan of. But I still respect the guy. I mean, he's still in the music business. He just released an album, I think, last year, two years ago. Um, he's produced and written for a lot of the boy bands, songs during the, you know, late 90s and then later on the 2000s. Did he really? He, he, he wrote a lot of those songs. I didn't know that. Yeah, very, very much involved. So very, very talented. It's just kind of a fun, I still tease her about it for fun, right? But uh, he wrote this song as a love letter to his wife, actress Cynthia Rhodes. Do you know Cynthia Rhodes? She was in a movie that Sounds so everyone listening will have seen. Familiar. We mentioned it earlier on this broadcast, actually, as one of the soundtracks that I forgot about in 1986 or 87. Uh, that you forgot about. That Patrick Swayze. Oh, Dirty Dancing. Dirty Dancing. Oh, was she the... Um, she was the one that, that was had, pregnant. Okay, yeah. That needed an abortion and that... Right, and they yeah. thought Swayze was the father and wasn't. Correct. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. Richard Marks' wife. I did, okay. That's Cynthia Rhodes. Huh. And because she was an actress, they were apart quite a bit. In fact, um, the time he wrote this, she was filming in South Africa at the time, and he was in the United States, and they were apart from each other. So Oceans Apart, right? How it uh, opens the song. Uh, but because it was so personal, he didn't want to record it. It was too tough for him to record. So he offered it to somebody else that we've already mentioned on this broadcast as well. This is a very, um, <laughs> there's a lot of incestuous uh, there is. music Can here. Can you name the artist that he uh, basically tr- uh, sent it to, to record? <sighs> I might be surprised. I'm trying to think of the flow of the song. We were talking about Johnny Mathis at the time. No. And you said Barbara Streisand. Barbara Streisand? Streisand? Yes, Barbara Streisand. Really? Yes. He sent it to her, and she rejected the song. Huh. And not for musical reasons, because she really liked the song. She thought it was great. But for lyrical ones, because she said she would not be waiting around for anybody. (laughs) Okay. Babs does not wait around. (laughs) For anyone. That, that seems in character. Yeah. So that is so. why she did not record it. So actually, he's happy that she passed on it because later, um, when he was a little more emotionally sound in the situation, uh, realized it was a great song and recorded it himself. And of course, um, it was huge. The song hit number one and earned Marks a Grammy nomination for Best Male Pop Vocal Performance in 1990. And it was his third consecutive number one. I forget how commercially successful he was in the late oh, yeah. 80s. 
I mean, we're not talking just top 40 hits. I mean, we're talking strings of number ones. So despite my snobbish taunts, uh, there's no denying that Marx uh, wrote and performed songs that people wanted to hear uh, and made people happy. And, uh, and really, you can't do any better than that. So uh, I'll put my snob away <laughs> and, and, and give accolades to, to Richard Marx here. And like I mentioned, he's still writing, he's still recording, he's working with other artists, and his most recent record dropped in 2022. I haven't listened to it, so I can't recommend it, but it's out there. Wow. I had no idea he was still around, Yeah, frankly. Yeah. That's pretty, that, that's longevity. Yeah. He's huh. made a good life for himself. Very cool. Are he and Rhodes still together? I think they are, but I are can't they? say for sure. Seems like my every- wife would probably know. <laughs> it just feels it feels like everyone divorces not long after they record the the ode. You know, a lot do, but you have some like um, like Robert Smith and his wife have been together since they were teenagers. Really? Yeah, there are there are stories out there of of people that just stuck together the whole time. Huh. All right. Well, here is my final selection for side A. Uh, It is titled Don't Dream It's Over by Crowded House. It comes from their self-titled LP from 1986, and this one hit number two. This may be the best song on our list. Crowded House lead singer Neil Finn, he wrote this song, and he explained in an interview with Goldmine that, quote, I wrote that on my brother's piano. He said, I'm not sure if I remember what the context was exactly, but it was just about on the one hand feeling kind of lost, and on the other hand sort of urging myself on. Don't dream it's over. He said, that one actually fell out literally without me thinking about it too much. Uh, Don't Dream It's Over is the biggest hit for Crowded House, uh, which formed after the New Zealand group Split Ends. Well, Split. Split Ends, yeah. Yeah. Um, That was in 85. And group members Neil Finn and Paul Hester on drums teamed with Nick Seymour on bass to form this new group, which they named Crowded House during making of their first album. Uh, They were living together in a very tight space while working on the album in L.A., and thus the band name. Um, Split Ends crossed the oceans with songs like History Never Repeats and Six Months in a Leaky Boat. They got on MTV with their zany videos, but for the most part, they were little known outside of Australia and New Zealand. Don't Dream It's Over took a while to catch on, but when it did, it became a global hit. Uh, As I said, it reached number two in America, where it was held back by Aretha Franklin's duet with George Michael. Another connection. I knew you were waiting for me. (laughs) Uh, the next single, Something So Strong, went to number seven in America, but they never again cracked the top 40 here. Um, the rest of the world was a different story. Crowded House landed lots of hits throughout Europe, particularly in the UK. And Well, Something So Strong hit in America, right? Right, yeah. Oh, did you say that? Okay, yeah. sorry. Um, th- no, this was a two-hit wonder. Gotcha. Um, yeah, yeah it, it, 
in American terms, right. of course. Right. Um, they took a hiatus in 96, but they returned from time to time and started touring again in 2007. Uh, subsequent lineups often included Finn's musician sons, Elroy and Liam. Um, this was the one, the Crowded House, uh, the one Crowded House song that Fleetwood Mac performed on tour. Hmm. Because for a short while, when Lindsey Buckingham backed out, uh, Neil Finn joined the band in 2018. And Stevie actually joined him on vocals for these Yeah, they kicked him out again. I think it's permanent this time. Yeah, I, I don't think Lindsey's coming. But, well, Fleetwood Mac's not coming back. Yeah. Christine McVie, of course, we lost right. her last year. Right. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, this one is just a fantastic song. Um, and, you know, we're gonna, I'm going to credit this song, too, for bringing the expression, hey now, back into vogue. Uh, that phrase is repeated four times in each chorus, right? Hey now, hey now, don't dream it's over. There was another popular song that used the phrase liberally. Uh, in 1965, it was by the Dixie Cups. I was going to say Outcast. <laughs> no, <laughs> it was in no. 1965. Uh, it was by the Dixie Cups. It's titled Ico Ico. It was a New Orleans flavored hit. Hey now, hey now, Ico Ico on Which day. was later on the cocktail soundtrack. It was. Yeah. yeah. Well, not not their version, a cover, right, right, cover right. of it. Yep. Um, in the 90s, Hey Now had a moment, uh, thanks to the transgressive HBO satire, The Larry Sanders Show, <laughs> where Jeffrey Tambor plays Hey Now, Hank Kingsley a character that uses it as a catchphrase. Neil Finn has joked that the song would have hit number one in America if they had titled it Hey Now. <laughs> and he's probably not wrong. Um, in 1988, Paul Young of Every Time You Go Away fame, which I'm surprised we did not include on this mixtape, but I didn't even... Yeah, that would have been a good that one. That was not on my radar. Um, he, he actually sang this at the Nelson Mandela tribute concert that was held at Wembley Stadium. Uh, it was broadcast around the world, and the concert reached about 600 million people, many of whom heard the song for the first time thanks to Young's performance. Uh, the song was on point from Mandela, whose fight for freedom helped liberate South Africa from apartheid. In 1991, Young released a studio version featuring Paul Carrick as a single. It charted several in several territories, including his native UK, and here um, it went to number 20. So... Okay, another trivia question for you. This was featured prominently in an 80s television miniseries. Oh, it was The Stand. Yeah, oh, there you go. Yeah, The Stand. Very good. Uh, Molly Ringwald is playing the 45 right when the world is falling yeah, apart. Yeah, Franny and Harold, which always really made me, that was unnerving that it was Franny and Harold. That, 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 <laughs> those, those were the names of my parents. <laughs> yeah, my pa my parents were Francis and Harold. So, yeah. yeah, Franny and Harold in that novel always kind of freaked me out a bit, especially <laughs> knowing how the story evolves right, but uh right. yeah um in fact i actually had that in my notes i wasn't going to go over it but uh and then another very famous cover uh sixpence none the richer mm, yes recorded yep. this song uh, yep. in 2002 yeah this song it's 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 a classic I, I i agree it may very likely be the best song on the mix i mean ask me five minutes later i'll pick another song right, right now that's yeah. that's my favorite but I, one on the list. it's just one i never get tired of and it's just I don't know. It's it's there's something about uh, lyrically, the song has just always kind of gotten me. Yeah. You know, um, it's it's hopeful, but it's also it's a breakup song, kind of. Yeah, I mean, it 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 is. It's it's just very. I, I I guess it's that that divisive moment where a couple has to make the choice. You know, do we work through it or do we call it quits? That's yeah. just kind of how the song always approached me. Yeah. Um, 
So I suppose it's apropos that we are throwing it here as we end side A. You have one more. Yeah, I have one more, yeah. Um, The last one for side A, so this is about the halfway point through our story, is a song called Volette by Julian Lennon, 1984, from the album of the same name. Sitting on the doorstep of the house again to fall So four years after the death of his father, Julian Lennon released his debut album, Volette. It was produced by Phil Ramone, who seems to have worked with every single artist of the era. Yes, he um, did. We know him as, as Billy Joel fans as having um, taken the raw material that was Billy Joel and honing it uh, for records like The Stranger and 52nd Street and so forth. Um, so he works with them at the Hit Factory uh, in New York, the studio where John recorded his final record, Double Fantasy. So kind of a, a, a cool little connection there. Now, kind of famously, they did not get along. Um, John was very absent as a father for most of Julian's life. Um, when he was older, when he was um, you know, a young man, hung out with Lennon and um, I was going to say Yoko, but I think it was May Peng he was kind of hanging around with at the time. But he said they had great conversations and, and great laughter. And so there were moments where they kind of bonded, but right. um, but it was very bittersweet. Well, I, I, I always felt bad for, for Julian. I mean, Sean was so uh, pampered, sure. you know. Yeah. Julian, I, I think Julian was just a constant reminder of Cynthia, and John wanted, I mean, he was a deadbeat dad for Julian. I can call it what it is. Um, but yeah, it's what what really always got me about this album is that Julian sounds spot on. Well, my next my next sentence I was going to say yeah. is I remember when this came out and everyone was going nuts to how much Julian sounded like his father. Yeah, right. And um, even McCartney was a fan. Um, he sent him a telegram expressing a very positive opinion of the record. Of course, Hey Jude was written for, for Ju- Julian, correct? Uh, and kind of the tension um, when all the Yoko stuff was going on. It was originally Hey Jules, and it was changed to Hey, du- hey, hey, hey Dude. Hey Dude. Hey Jude. <laughs> <laughs> um, the single was a top 10 hit, and it was followed by the poppy Too Late for Goodbyes, which is my favorite uh, song on the record. I love that song. Uh, which enjoyed similar success. Um, I had this album on cassette, as well as the second release, 
But I could just I could never get into the second one. It was called the Secret Value of Daydreaming, I think, something like that. And I could I just couldn't get into it. Yeah. Now I own I owned this one on vinyl. Um, still have it actually. Um, I I found it not too long ago going through some of my my stacks. Um, never bought the second album. Yeah. And yeah, well, I, you saved yourself. Yeah. Bucks. Um, I don't know that I've ever heard a song from the second album, frankly. Um, yeah, I, I might have listened to it once and, and never listened to it yeah. again. But no, Julian, man, when I first heard Too Late for Goodbyes yeah, on the radio, I really, honest to God, I thought that they found a, a, a an unreleased track by John Lennon. Mm-hmm. I and mean, he sounds exactly. And resembles him physically as well. Yeah, well, yeah, he looks yeah. just like him as yeah. well. Uh, but I, I did. I thought it was a John Lennon tune that you know they found buried somewhere. I had no no idea that it was Julian singing. So mm-hmm. it, it's uncanny how much he sounds like his dad. Well, kind of like Richard Marks, I was surprised to learn that Julian is still recording. Is he really? Uh, his latest record was released in 2022, and it's titled, appropriately, Jude. Huh. Yeah. Did not know I might that. have to listen to it. Yeah. With Spotify, there's no risk, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> I don't lose eight bucks, uh, or today would probably... What do you think CDs would cost today with inflation? 20 bucks? Oh, well... An album now is thirty. Well, vinyl, vinyl. But that's because it's limited well, run and yeah, it's, it's expensive to make. Yeah. But I, if, if CDs were still the main mode of of, of purchasing music these it, days, it'd be twenty bucks. Yeah, yeah. at least. Um, what about cassettes? If cassettes were still around, what do you think? I mean, they were all pretty much at the same price point, right? Because you mentioned earlier that albums were about eight or nine dollars, right? Um, and then cassettes were were ten. I remember. And then CDs, I think, were maybe twelve bucks. I want to say twelve to fifteen yeah, yeah. was a CD, but my God, that was thirty thirty five years ago. So, I mean, if you go by the concert ticket inflation, we could get a concert ticket for a big band for what twenty bucks, thirty bucks back in the eighties. <sighs> Those were the days. Now they're two hundred or three hundred bucks if <laughs> yeah. you want to get really good seats. Oh, doesn't that just make you sick? God, we sound old. <laughs> we are. We are old. All right, that is side A. Yes. So our narrative is at its halfway point, and you will have to come back in two weeks to see how it resolves. So it's about time we do this. You know, we've never played with the idea, letting the songs speak for themselves and tell a story. And I I think, I mean, certainly there are some gaps here. Um, I I would be curious to see what our listeners, you know, what storyline they come up with of their own. But um, I think we did a fairly good job, and I think side A is tight. Yeah. So and I hope somebody, or at least several people, write in with their summaries, and we'll of course read them on air. Yeah, if we absolutely. Some. So the question now, folks, when you come back next week, does this couple make two weeks, it? Two weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks. Does this couple make it, or do they call it quits? Long distance relation. I've been in a long distance relationship. It, it's not an easy thing. So uh, my hat is off to all lovers who are separated by space and time this Valentine's Day. This this mixtape was for you. Yeah. So. Well, that's all for this week. Hot funk, cool punk, even if it's old junk. Another mix of memories awaits in two weeks. But for now, press pause, lift the needle, and hit eject. And we will see you on the flip side. Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memory
okay Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out, if you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time Turn the volume to nine 